0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you open them up to Luke chapter 5? Luke 5, we're continuing this series called Meet Jesus as we work our way through Luke. If you don't have a Bible, but you've got a smart device with you, BibleGateway.com is a good, good place to go. BibleGateway.com, just type in Luke 5, and it'll come up there for you. Uh, my uh, favorite childhood memories of time with my dad were of us fishing. We, uh, we lived in northern Minnesota. Yes, that's me. I'm the younger one. We, uh, we lived in northern Minnesota where it wasn't unusual to have snow on the ground through the end of April, but as uh, as soon as the ice was off the lake, uh, my dad and I would go fishing. We fished Leech Lake in far northern Minnesota. Uh, we fished off the shore most often, Cabacona Bay. At uh, dusk, the walleye would come in to feed, and uh, we... Uh, We had some successful nights, I would say. And I tell you what, there is nothing better tasting than catching one of those and then eating it immediately. Nothing better. The version of fishing that I enjoyed is much different than the one Peter and his crew engaged in. For Peter, this was not a hobby. This was not a a fun thing necessarily done after a long day of work. It was his livelihood. And therefore, a certain stress came with it because fish is money. Fish is how they put food on the table. And uh, Peter did not fish the way I did with a single line and hook, but with a net. And he fished through all hours of the night. I doubt very much, however, Peter will ever forget this particular day on the water. Let's read it. In Luke chapter 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, In looking at the story of the miraculous catch of fish and Peter and his experience of it, let's not forget in all of this Theophilus. It seems reasonable that Theophilus was seeking to know more about Jesus to perhaps grow in his confidence of the things that Jesus said and did. Maybe he wasn't all the way convinced. And so Luke is attempting to put together a meticulously researched document an orderly account of what transpired in and around this famed Jesus. So why does Luke include this story of Peter and the massive catch of fish? Well, I would contend that this is the day Peter became a follower of Jesus in our modern lingo. This is the day that Jesus, that Peter became a Christian Not a perfect Christian, but a true Christian. Peter is a very relatable character. He's a very human person. He's far from perfect. He's down to earth. He seems to make every conceivable mistake, and therefore he's an encouraging example to us of how it's possible to make many mistakes and yet be a follower of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways Luke encourages Theophilus and us to go all in on following Jesus is by telling us the story of the first people to ever make that decision. People become Christians in a variety of ways. There certainly is no one size fits all way someone becomes a follower of Christ. But I will say that the way in which Peter becomes a follower of Jesus contains characteristics I think that that each of us have to experience if we're going to be considered a Christian. So, how does one become a follower of Christ? How does one become a Christian? Well, notice four things in the story of Peter. We need to hear, trust, confess, and respond. Hear, trust, confess, and respond. First, we have to hear. Now, Jesus has a growing reputation as a preacher. The power and authority of his preaching has drawn a packed crowd. Peter is clearly within earshot. Presumably Peter is the one Jesus asked to use his boat as a floating pulpit. Peter is clearly the one who pushed uh, the boat a few feet from shore so that Jesus could continue preaching. So what is the content of Jesus' preaching? Well, all that we're told is that it's the word of God. That's it. It might seem plain, it might seem obvious, but there is something to draw out of this. The Word of God is something human beings learn through proclamation, not intuition. The Word of God is something that people learn through proclamation, not intuition. There's a natural neediness within all of humanity to hear the Word of God spoken and taught. Luke doesn't tell us the exact passages of scripture that Jesus taught, nor the topics he may have covered, but we do know Jesus sat in the boat teaching the word of God for some time. And all the while Peter is in earshot. It might seem obvious, but the fact of the matter is some people aren't Christians because they haven't heard the word of God. They haven't heard the word of God. Luke who documented this event was a travel companion of the apostle paul i can imagine on some of their adventures together luke and paul having conversations i wonder if they had a conversation about this topic because paul seems to write about it romans chapter 10 paul says how can they how then can they call on the one they have not believed in and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard and how can they hear without someone preaching to them some people aren't Christians because they haven't heard the word of God. One of the reasons missions is on a front, front burner ministry here for us at Alliance Bible Church is this. We know people become followers of Jesus Christ when they hear the word of God. Now make no assumptions. Just because you may have grown up in the church or in proximity to churches or around or with Christians doesn't mean you've heard the word of God. Just because there's a church in every corner doesn't mean the word of God is preached on every corner. Some people aren't Christians because they haven't heard the word of God. They may have heard a few sound bites, but the word of God lies in their hearts like a badly fragmented hard drive. And so I would say get into proximity to the word of God proclaimed. If your heart breaks for someone not following Jesus, never hesitate to bring them into contact with the word of God. Even if you've done that a thousand times before, you never know what God may have in store for them that day. You never know. There was a family in a church in South Carolina pastored by Sinclair Ferguson. And this father and mother had a young adult son who was far from being a Christian Following Jesus just wasn't on his list of interests. Unbeknownst to them, while their son was visiting one day, he swiped a recording of one of Dr. Ferguson's sermons. He played that recording, that same sermon, that one sermon every day for a month. And after listening to that message the 30th time, he became a follower of Christ. After hearing the word of God preached the first day, he did not become a follower of Jesus. After he heard it the second day, he did not become a follower of Jesus Christ. After hearing it the 21st day, he did not become a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I know something about Dr. Ferguson's preaching. I can tell you there was about 20 hours of preaching that this young man took in before he decided to follow Jesus. hours. Hours of preaching. Becoming a Christian always, always, always involves hearing the Word of God and sometimes hearing it dozens of times before the penny drops. Second, trust. Peter, his brother Andrew, his partners James and John had spent the night fishing with drag nets. The way they fished, nets, anchors on one end of the, uh, one side of the the net, floats on the other, right? They would, uh, these nets, it was backbreaking labor. 100 feet, perhaps, of nets, and uh, they would have to set it out in a semicircle, and then they'd have to haul this in, drawing it in hand over hand, and repeating the procedure again if they're going to get this all, all set. It was hard work, very hard work, that only strong men could do. The group, the fishermen, had sweat through the night without so much as a fish, and so at dawn, they beached their boats, they ate breakfast, And under the warming sun engaged in this tedious and necessary process of washing, mending, and arranging their nets for drying. And once dry, they would be folded, placed back in the boats for the coming night of fishing. So after this tedious and backbreaking labor is done, Jesus tells Peter to load the boats with the freshly cleaned nets, put out into deep water, and let them down again. That was a demanding request, to say the least. Jesus was asking men who had not slept all night, who had spent the remainder of the night examining their empty meshes to beach the boat, load a thousand pounds of wet nets, row out to deep water, circle round while setting the net, and all this at midday. If you have ever fished with a professional guide, you will realize how outrageous Jesus' request was, humanly speaking. Professional fishermen know that 100% of the fish are in 10% of the water. And they definitely know where the percentages lie. I have been out with guides. I have caught my limit when no other fish were caught on the lake because a professional fisherman knows fish and knows how to find them. This professional fisherman, Peter, couldn't find them that night, and now Jesus, a carpenter, is telling him to go out into deep water and let down their newly cleaned nets? What are you an expert in? Have you ever had someone with little to no knowledge of your expertise offer you advice? I can sympathize with Peter's reticence. But Jesus, by testing Peter, is showing us something profound about what it means to be a Christian. In essence, Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to need to follow me in the areas of your life where you think you know better. Isn't it easier to give control to Jesus in the areas of life where we're stumped? Where we're in over our heads? Where we don't know what to do? We see this phenomenon often. This phenomenon is the reason there are no atheists on an airplane that's about to crash. In fact, we saw this phenomenon when Damar Hamlin went into cardiac arrest on the football field a few weeks ago. The Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin, which is a secular periodical, conducted case studies on this. Basically, they concluded that belief in the supernatural intensifies when people are faced with mortality. Isn't it easier to give control to Jesus in the areas of our life where we're stumped and we don't know what to do and we're in over our heads. But the true Christian we're being told here defers to Jesus in the areas where they think they know better. The true Christian defers to Jesus in everyday routines. Jesus is saying, Simon, You need to understand it's not just in the areas where you think you're weak; it's in the areas where you think you're strong that you're going to have to bow to my word. You know, as we think about all the word of the word of God teaches, the very same word Jesus was teaching this day. What are some of the things that it tells us to do? Where we might be tempted to say, "Well, that's just foolish," that's just ludicrous. If I was in Peter's shoes that day, I could very easily see myself responding to Jesus' command with Jesus, are you this is preposterous. Everybody knows you don't fish midday. We didn't catch anything during prime time, and you want us to fish now? After we've cleaned the nets? After we've been up all night? That's laughable. Is there anything Jesus can ask of you or has asked of you wherein you have responded with, no, Jesus, that's outlandish. How about when he calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? How about when he tells us to provide material aid to those in need who believe and behave differently than we do? Or when he calls us to be reconciled to a fellow Christian Or when he says, I need you to say no to a lifestyle of self-indulgence and self-gratification. I need you to take up your cross and follow me. Or all the places where he says, don't worry about your life. Or all the places where he says, come to me. Or his radical teaching on generosity. Or when he says, you need to love me more than you love your spouse, your kids, your parents. Would any of these get a response from you saying, are you crazy, Jesus? A true Christian obeys Jesus, not because he makes sense, but because he says so. Now what's neat about this is Peter did obey. It's remarkable. I only imagine the thoughts that were running through his head. But he obeyed. He obeyed Jesus' demanding order. Remember, this was not easy. It's demanding. And he obeyed, not because it made sense, but because Jesus said so. And what happened? Jesus unleashes his power, authority, and goodness into Peter's life on a scale that Peter had never before seen. When you submit to Jesus's demanding word that may not make sense to you, but you do anyway, simply because it's Jesus and he said so, get ready. Get ready. Because he may unleash into your life a demonstration of power, authority, and goodness, the likes of which you've never seen before. Some of you may not have crossed the line yet because you've not truly heard the word of God. Your heart is like a badly fragmented hard drive or a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle with only a few pieces put together. What you need is clarity. You need to go through the gospel again to have someone help you go through the gospel in order to defrag your hard drive, to help you put the pieces together. We have people here who do this. They're here to help you. If that's you, say something. Say something to a family member, say something to a friend, say something to a church leader. Some of you haven't crossed the line yet because you're waiting for Jesus to make sense. You've got this standard in your head that you're holding him accountable to, and he's trying to get you to see the opposite is what needs to happen here. Maybe you don't like what Jesus is calling you to. What you need is the gift of trust. You need the gift of trust. You you need a set a deep, settled conviction that if you take Jesus at his word, It's going to be okay. And if that's you, you got to ask him for trust. You got to ask him for the gift of trust. Say to him, Jesus, please help me take you at your word rather than making, waiting for you to make sense to me. But third, some of you haven't crossed the line because you're not fully aware of your sinfulness before God. And therefore you don't really see your need for Jesus the hall of fish is so large. There are two boats, each seven and a half feet wide and 27 feet long. We're to the point of sinking. Remember fish is money. So how does Peter respond with whooping and hollering and high fives and fist bumps and chest bumps? No. It says when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man this response, humanly speaking, doesn't make sense. If on your way out the door today, I tell you to check your bank account balance and I let you know you've got an extra $100,000 sitting there and you check and lo and behold, it's true, you're not going to get on bended knee before me and say, depart from me, Danesburg, for I'm a sinful person. What's happening in Peter's heart? Something deep is going on. This was a spontaneous and impulsive act of humble repentance. Paying no attention to the danger that his boat was in, Peter fell right down then and there in the boat and confessed that he was a sinner. So by performing this miracle, Jesus had displayed his divine majesty and in response, Peter calls him Lord master master. Peter reverently acknowledges Jesus' sovereign lordship, and in so doing, he sees his own sin. One commentator says, it is the holiness of the Lord that causes moral agony to the sinner. Peter understood that he was in the presence of someone perfectly holy, and that by contrast, he himself was totally depraved. So he fell down and confessed not some specific sin note, but the sin of his entire nature. Sooner or later, every true Christian must come to the point of full repentance. We have to see ourselves as we really are in all our sin. And the way we see ourselves as we really are is by seeing Jesus as he really is in all his power and majesty there has to come a point of comparison there has to come a point of comparison john calvin once said man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with god's majesty we experience this on a human level i experienced this in uh in high school um I I played basketball in high school and um, got to participate in the UW-Green Bay Select Summer Basketball Camp. The word select is important here. Um, they, They attracted some of the best basketball players around the state to play. That was not me. I knew someone who got me in. In hindsight, I'm wondering about the wisdom of that, but it's water under the bridge now. First day of camp, you've got about 120 campers. They divide you up into 12 teams, right? So you're with other campers. One of the first drills that we do is a two-on-one drill, full court, two-on-one drill, two on offense, one on defense. You know, it's kind of a fast break simulation. It's both helpful for the offense and for the defense. And uh, I was watching, so three guys on my team doing this drill, two guys on offense. One of the guys on offense looked at his partner just before they were going down and just did one of these. And I was standing there. I thought, wow, what does that mean? So they went down and his partner threw the ball up to the hoop and this guy dunked it. An alley-oop. dunk. It was at that point in time I realized I was in the wrong gym. <laughs> this was going to be a very long week. Well, I got to know this, this uh, teammate of mine. Uh, his name was Mike Kelly, and uh, he was a highly recruited basketball player out of Milwaukee Pius, ended up playing for the Wisconsin Badgers, was on the uh, Badgers Final Four team uh, several years ago. And uh, I'll never forget that experience. I thought I was a decent player until I went to that camp. And I realized I'm in the presence of superior talent here. And it was quite humbling, maybe even humiliating. At some point in time in our lives, we have to experience this humbling, this humiliation. Humiliation. Being in the presence of someone with superior skill or being in the presence of the holy and majestic God. I get why Peter responded the way he did. I understand that. Now you might say, but Pastor, you can't tell people they're miserable sinners, you'll make them feel bad. Well, if you want a bucket of cold water, (laughs) I'm not sure it's possible to help people feel as badly about themselves as their badness deserves. I'm not sure it's possible. A few years ago, there was an article in the New York Times called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. In it, Lauren Slater quotes a researcher who studied criminals and concluded this. The fact is, we've put antisocial men through every self-esteem test we have, and there's no evidence for the old psychodynamic concept that they secretly feel bad about themselves. These men are racist or violent because they don't feel bad enough about themselves. We're not all that different from these men. Beginning in the 1960s, Yale psychologist Stanley Milgram recruited subjects to participate as what he called teachers in what he claimed was an experiment on learning. In the presence of a supervising experimenter, a teacher was told to read a list of word pairs to a learner. So you've got a teacher, you've got a learner, you've got an experimenter. This learner had been strapped to an electric chair. If the learner answered questions incorrectly, the teacher was instructed to administer an electric shock, increasing the voltage each time a mistake was made. Unbeknownst to the teacher, the shocks were fake, and both the learner and the experimenter were actors. The real experiment probed what percentage of teachers would be willing to apply potentially lethal voltages to the learner's. As the experiment progressed, the teacher could hear the learner uttering cries of pain, complaining of a heart condition, begging to be released. Eventually, the learner fell completely silent and stopped answering questions. In spite of these deterrents, 65% of the participants were willing to administer the highest voltage. In 2006, the experiment was replicated. The results were the same. I'm not sure it's possible for us to feel as badly about ourselves as our badness deserves. Stephen Sharnock, who has written a magisterial work on the attributes of God, for hours and hours and hundreds and hundreds of pages, he just stared at God. And one of the conclusions he came to was this he said more distant are we from god by reason of sin than the vilest creature the most deformed toad or poisonous serpent is from the highest and most glorious angel some of you haven't crossed the line yet because you're not fully aware of your sinfulness before god Know this, when you come to the Lord, you don't bring one shred of goodness with you, not one. This is what makes grace so amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Telling people they're good only reduces their perceived need for a savior. I'm just fine, thank you very much. What do I need Jesus for? Without Jesus, you have and are nothing. There's one more aspect to Peter's response we should note. Look at how he responds. The only kind of Christian is a useful Christian. There's no such thing as a useless Christian. Peter's responses to Jesus, taking him at his word, confessing his sin are signs of a true Christian. Jesus Please note, doesn't flee from you when this is your response to him. He draws near to you. He recruits you. He saves you. And then he sends you out. Jesus responds to Peter saying, don't be afraid, Peter. Be afraid. From now on, you're going to fish for people. Literally, it reads, from now on, you're going to capture people alive. Every true Christian tells people about Jesus. There it is. Every true Christian tells people about Jesus. Peter hauled in boatloads of people for Christ. Boatloads. And so my friends, let's get the nets in the water. Spread them out far and wide so the Lord of the catch can fill our boats to overflowing. So here's the question. Who in your life needs to hear the gospel again? Who in your life needs to hear the gospel again? Who can you invite to church next week? Who can you invite to Christianity Explored? Who can you invite to have lunch with you where you can have a a Jesus conversation? Every true Christian tells people about Jesus. Who in your life needs to hear about him again? Go for it. In 1857, Jeremiah Lanfear. A common businessman in New York City started a weekly prayer meeting. In preparation for this prayer meeting, he had distributed written notices throughout many of New York City's businesses, inviting anyone interested to attend every Wednesday from noon to one. At 12 noon on September 23rd, 1857, the door was opened and the faithful Landfear went to his seat to await the response to his invitation. Five minutes went by. No one appeared. Lanfear paced the room in a conflict of fear and faith. 10 minutes elapsed. Still no one came. 15 minutes passed. Lanfear was still alone. 20 minutes. 25. 30. And then at 1230, a step was heard on the stairs. And the first person appeared. Then another and another and another. Until six people were present And the prayer meeting began. Two weeks later, on Wednesday, October 7th, 40 turned out to pray. In the first week of October, 1857, it was decided to hold a meeting daily instead of weekly. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen were gathering daily for prayer in New York. And within two years, a million converts were added to American churches. Undoubtedly, the greatest revival in New York's colorful history was sweeping the city. And it was of such an order to make the whole nation curious. There was no fanaticism, no hysteria, simply the faithful actions of a commoner. What people, most, what people don't realize is that this revival was not limited to the Northeast. It had spread throughout the Midwest in part because a group of conservative Presbyterians rallied in Pittsburgh on December 1st, 1857, then issued a letter to congregations urging prayer and preaching for revival. The governor of Ohio induced tears when he told those gathered at a Columbus prayer meeting about his own conversion. In Cleveland, 2000 met daily for prayer. One correspondent in Iowa wrote to New England editors in the spring of 1858 about the revival's reach saying, just as the winds of heaven speak the strongest over the broad open prairies, so some of the prairies, the wind of the Spirit, has spoken with an irresistible power, and the sinner in the humblest isolated cabin has rejoiced in a new life. And a similarly enthusiastic report about the awakening's grand scale came from Appleton, Wisconsin. There was an article written April 10th, 1858 in the Appleton Post Crescent, which still today is the paper in the Fox Valley. And this article said this, the grand revival is becoming a universal thing throughout the union. All our exchanges from those ponderous city dailies down to the smallest of country weeklies fill their columns to overflowing with accounts of revivals businessmen's meetings, protracted meetings, etc., which feature we are glad to behold in all of them. The excitement has spread from city to city and from village to village. And we hope it may continue to spread from place to place, from country to country until the whole world is following in the narrow path. Let the work go on. When I read that, I say, Lord, do it again. Do it again. May we take you at your word. Trust it. When it doesn't make sense to us, may we proceed in faith and obedience. And Lord, I pray that you'd shock us with the catch you put in our boats. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I pray for an exponential response like the one Peter had to your word, to the gospel, to Jesus. I pray that you would tear down anything that hinders from taking you at your word, the objections we raise the things that don't make sense to us, God, I pray that you would tear those down. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to see our need. Just as you overwhelmed Peter with a sense of his sinfulness, I pray, God, you would supernaturally do the same with us. that the result would be falling at your knees, pleading with you to show us your grace and your mercy, and then commissioning us for use in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that whatever is hindering those from surrendering wholly to you, that you'd tear it down. We ask this through the powerful, saving name of Jesus. Amen.